Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Spiritual Insights with Charlotte Spicer. Spirituality and Metaphysics Talk Radio, featuring a course in miracles, dream interpretation, guided meditation, and the psychic and metaphysics free-for-all. It's your opportunity to consult with a professional psychic medium, discuss past lives, the chakras, and more. We are non-denominational, and there are no limits. Want to change your life? You must first change your mind. 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 No matter your religious structure, cultivate peace in your reality through self-awareness with an authentic spiritual teacher. And now, your host, Charlotte Spicer. joining us today at Spiritual Insights. It's a pleasure to have you all with us. And recently I have discovered that there are quite a number of people who are channeling very interesting entities and today is equally astounding. David Young's book, Channeling Harrison, isn't just another story that proves that life continues on after physical death. It's an amazing memoir of startling synchronistic events woven into the fabric of his life until the absolutely unavoidable realization came that he was indeed channeling the spirit and musical genius of George Harrison of the Beatles. David's story is about overcoming heartache, facing our fears, and with faith and trust, embodying the true essence of our souls to complete its mission here on earth, to contribute to a society of human beings where purpose and meaning often seem elusive or even absent. This is a repeatedly jaw-dropping account of how God, the universe, and disincarnate entities were constantly supporting David on his journey of growth and healing. By reading it, it's our hope that you will recognize the events in your life that serve as evidence that you as well have been supported all along your journey. So please welcome Grammy-nominated musician and author David Young. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you. Nice to be here with you. It's a pleasure. I absolutely loved reading your book. It's amazing. And to get started with, in the book, you put a chapter in it about your friend. So with your blessing, I'd like to dedicate the segment to your friend, Mark Riel. that be okay? Yeah, that sounds great. Mark was my my close friend, and he was my guitar teacher, and... You know, I was interested in learning how to play hard rock, and that's what he taught me. And, um, you know, my music has obviously transformed now because I'm known for playing two flutes at one time. But Mark um, was incredibly helpful to me. He never charged me anything. I would would recommend him as a great guitar teacher to any of you guys out there, but you just have to find a way to get to heaven because um, he crossed over two years ago. Um, So... Uh, but he's a, he was a wonderful guy and um, an amazing musician. Wow. And I, well, really, uh, I really didn't know one of the unique things that connects all these things, but I didn't even know because he was so into hard rock like Led Zeppelin and you know, hard rock music. I didn't even know that George Harrison was his favorite guitar player of all time. And because I was a little bit too young to be a Beatles fan and, you know, I... I didn't believe in channeling at all, 
when all right. this stuff started, and, and I was afraid it goes besides. So for those three reasons, I, I really had no idea why George would contact me and wouldn't have anything to do with me because I knew so little about him, and I didn't, I didn't know we had these past life connections that he told me about. I, I was just clueless about everything for right. three years of these experiences. Wow. Well, I'm confident that Mark is with us today. So, hello, Mark. And I'm equally I'm equally confident that Mr. Harrison is with us as well. So, blessings to you, Mr. Harrison. And feel free to speak to either one of us. Oh, I, oh, well, I just wanted to give him that little bit of respect there. <laughs> I was young myself, so I wasn't too acquainted with the Beatles. But I, um, I was a huge Paul McCartney fan from the age of three, believe it or not. Um, yeah, he's amazing. We're, so were you, you weren't really a Beatles fan either? Well, I was a little bit too young. I was born in 1961, and when I was a teenager, that was 1975, so that was, you know, after the Beatles had broken up. And right. I, was, I was just attracted to hard rock music, and, you know, that's what I, you know, that's what I learned and I studied, you know. I, I never, right. I, I, I honestly, I didn't know how to play one Beatles song. It's like, it's such a funny thing in a way, and it's, it's embarrassing and funny at the same time. You know? Yeah. Well, that's what it is. Well, how did you go from hard yeah. rock to playing a recorder, which is an unusual instrument that's uh, generally what we start on in music schools with a simple recorder. When did you first learn to play that, and when did you start playing two at one time, which is even more unusual? Well, I started playing the recorder in third grade, like everybody else in the Brooklyn, New York public school system, because it was part of the curriculum, you know. And right. I was the worst in my class, and after the first year was over, apparently they had extra money in the school system, and so they asked us if we wanted to have a second year of it, and so we were like, I guess so, you know. I mean, we were just fourth graders, you know. Yeah. And the unique thing about it is that with as many times as I've told the story, I've never met anyone who ever got two years of the recorder. Everybody got one year of it, and I've never met anybody who had a similar situation as I did. But during mm -hmm. the second year of playing the recorder, I started getting better at it, and by the end of the year, I was the best in my class at it. I ended up studying from a guy in the New York Philharmonic Orchestra named Phil Levin, who was the most um, well-known teacher of Baroque and Renaissance music in New York City at the time, and that kept me going until I got to be about, I think it was about 14, and I got into Jethro Tull, and then once I heard Jethro Tull, I was done with classical music, and then I started to play guitar just because nobody really needed a recorder player in all the garage bands that people had, you know, that my friends might have had, you know. Right. And mm -hmm. so as I, um, you know, I started to play guitar, I got away from the recorder just because, you know, I just focused on the guitar because it was cool, you know. Yeah. And I played, it's hard to believe, but I, you know, I played in an ACDC tribute band from 1980 to 1982 um, for those two years, and um, I ended up moving to California after that, and I ran out of money like everybody else who moves to California as a musician, you know. Mm -hmm. And out of desperation, I just started, I went down to Venice Beach because I was down to my last hundred bucks. I didn't know what to do with myself. And I started started playing the recorder at the beach with the woman who played the harp. And we had these, uh, these tapes that we made called Celestial Winds. And we ended up selling 10,000 copies of those tapes at the beach. And... You know, people from Los Angeles would 
know to expect us there every weekend so people would come back and listen to us because um, we did play there for two years and whatever tourists were there would always, you know, want to take pictures with us and buy the tapes because they were cassette tapes at that point. And right. um, so huh. what, the reason why I started playing the two flutes at one time is because in the very beginning when when Lisa the Harpist and I started playing together, you know, we only knew six songs together. And we would play those same six songs over and over, like 30 or 40 times a day, oh. um, which for a musician, that's called torture, in case you were wondering. And yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, during the afternoon, after we played each song 20 times already, it was so boring, just to break up the monotony, I would pick up a second flute. And it was interesting because Lisa had this beautiful long curly hair and she wore these white linen dresses that were blowing in the wind and she had a beautiful Celtic harp. And so when people would walk by, they would say, look at that beautiful woman and that beautiful harp. And I would be like the invisible man, which mm. I really didn't like. Um, but sure? in the afternoons, yeah, every time I would play the two flutes at one time, whoever's walking by would say, hey, look, there's a guy playing two flutes at one time. And then I got the <laughs> attention from that. And that was really the only reason why I started doing it. And it took me three years of practicing six hours a day to really get it down, you know. Wow. That's that's quite a while, three years. But you got proficient, and now you've sold over a million albums, and you've been nominated for a Grammy how many times? Twice? Two times. Yeah. Two times. And you know, the weird thing about when I play the two flutes, you know, it's a very intriguing visual for people to see me do two different things on each hand, you know, while I'm blowing into both of the flutes at one time, but mm-hmm. you know, there's a, a sound element that is very unique because the two flutes create what's called the triharmonic tone and mm-hmm. so the two flutes create a third note that sounds like a buzz, it's just a vibration, like a um, and so what happens is that when people hear me play these two flutes, it's almost like they're hearing this buzz. They're hearing this resonance, mm-hmm. uh, this vibration, and they don't really know what it is, but it's going right into their heart center and touching them because of this vibration, this unique vibration. I felt that when I listened to your music. It was more like an, a spiritual experience than just simply listening to music, and I felt exactly what you just described. I was going to tell you about it. But it, I can, I, I know the tone that you're talking about because I noticed it, and kind of wondered what that was. And being musically inclined, but the more what took over were the sensations, the physical sensations, and the spiritual awareness that this isn't just music. This is something beyond, like a beyond ter, um, terrestrial sounds, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense, and. You know, I've had people email me over the years asking me, you know, like, because I felt over 10,000 spas, massage therapists, Reiki practitioners, chiropractors, acupuncturists, people who play my music for eight hours a day. Um, and they, they've they asked me, you know, I've had your CDs in here for 10 years. I've been listening to your CDs for 10 years all day long. And how come I don't ever get tired of them? I get, you know, every once in a while I'll get another CD, I'll put that in there. But, you know, after a couple of hours, I I, I, I don't have that same feeling that I get in my, my spa or in my wellness center as I have when I'm playing your music. And, mm-hmm. and why is that? And I don't know why it is. I guess the only thing I could 
say is maybe it's that triharmonic tone that creates that resonance in my music, or maybe it's my love for music, or maybe I just got pretty darn good at it. I don't know. (laughs) Mm. Well, don't mess with it. It works. And all those spas and everybody, massage therapists, everybody's using it, and it's impacting their customers as well as the practitioner. So I think you're onto something really fantastic here. And then... So you have this wonderful music career touring around um, the country and all different places, and then we come to you writing a book. Well, this was I, this was nothing that I ever could have dreamed of because I mean I wasn't a Beatles fan, you know. Um, sure. I I knew so little about George Harrison. The only thing I knew about George was that he was friends with Eric Clapton. He was in the Beatles. And he had something to do with the concert for Bangladesh. That's it. You know, I I knew a lot about my favorite groups like Led Zeppelin or Jethro Tull or ACDC, any of these groups that I, you know, I really idolized these groups. I knew all the trivia that you could possibly know about these groups. But I mm-hmm. knew nothing about George. So when, when this stuff started, I just I just didn't know what to think at all. And mm-hmm. um, this this thing has gone on. It, it took me three years because because I didn't believe in channeling. I mean, I, I would never have had the thought of going to a channeler. I, I would never, I mean, I just, I never thought of it because I didn't sure. believe in it, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's just been like one thing after another, and it's it's a, the way he he started communicating with me really for the first three years of this was through these synchronicities. He had mm-hmm. this um, ability to set these synchronicities up in my life that were just beyond... I mean, I had had... I've been meditating for 27 years when this started. I had studied Ekankar for 27 years at that point. And so every mm-hmm. day I meditated um, 20 to 30 minutes a day, once or twice a day, you know, and yes. so during that 27 years, I didn't ever have a beer or a glass of wine or any mind-altering anything. All I did was, you know, play music and meditate and, you know, whatever else I would do, whether it was working out or yoga or, you know, these were any you know, this is what my life was about, you know. And right. so these things synchronicities, the way it started is that I had just ended a nine-year relationship. Um, I adopted her two kids. We lived in a big mansion that I bought because I was very successful at that time, you know. And mm-hmm. this all all came came to a, to a halt at the same time. And so I lost the house in a, in a foreclosure. The relationship ended. I For a short time, I I lost contact with her two daughters just because that was part of the whole thing. And her daughters lived in my house for nine years, so they were my kids as yes. much as they were hers because, you know, I, I, they lived with me. Yeah, and familiar. so it was just it was just a terrible um, time of my life to just... I tell people, it's like my life is going through the shredder. Everybody has a shredder at home by their computer, you know, and that my life is going into that shredder after yeah. selling a million CDs and having everything a man could want. You know, yeah. and so as I I decided that since I had been flying to forty trade shows a year for massage, healing, whatever, art festivals, 
um, I decided that I had to drive back to the East Coast so I could fly to these shows because the economy was crashing in 2010, and it just wasn't making sense anymore for me to fly every weekend to a different city. So I, I had to drive. So as I was driving back to the uh, to the East Coast on my way to Chicago from Minneapolis, and I was really, really in this terrible, terrible place. You know, yeah. I, I said to God, I said, God, I need give me some music to listen to that's going to make me feel better. And so I had a random stack of 50 CDs in my car without the cases. They were just the discs themselves. And I randomly picked one out, like kind of like a lucky fortune cookie or something. And right. the one I picked out was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And I thought, mm. well, that sure is appropriate to how I feel right now. So I put that on because I'd been given it as a gift for Christmas the year before. And... So when I put it on, when I got to the eighth song, it was George Harrison's song, Within You, Without You. And mm. there was something about listening to that with the sitars and the, the... It was like the world's first New Age song or something like that. It did have vocals in it and everything, but it was so ethereal and and spiritual, you know? Yeah. And so when the song was over, I, I hit repeat. And uh, when it ended again, I hit repeat again, and I hit repeat on that song for three hours that day, and I'm thinking, why am I doing this? So on the following three weeks, I, I had to stop in Chicago to do some shows in Chicago. It took me three weeks to get back to New York, and during that mm-hmm. three weeks, every day, I listened to that song for two or three hours a day, feeling the peace and the beautiful energy and like the comfortness yeah. that it was giving me. But I didn't know, I really didn't know why I was doing this. It's, all I knew is that it made me feel better for some reason. And when I finally got to New York, I went to visit a friend of mine who had found out that I had gotten a little bit famous, you know, from the million CDs that I had sold. Right. And because I had given him guitar lessons when I was in high school, he he really wanted to meet with me and thank me and, you know, like take me out to lunch or whatever, you know. And so when I got to his house, um, he immediately took me to his best friend's house, who also wanted to meet me. And when I got to his best friend's house, sitting on his television set was a DVD of the concert for Bangladesh. And I thought, man, this is weird. I'd just been listening to that George Harrison song two, three hours a day for three weeks. And here I'm randomly going to see somebody I haven't seen in 25 years, and he's got this DVD like sitting right there when I walk in. I just thought right. that was strange. So, so we watched it. And I got to get some insight into who George was and what he was about as much as you could from the concert for Bangladesh because it was a live concert that he put on in 1971 because his guitar guitar teacher, Ravi Shankar, um, told him that there were all these starving people dying out in the desert of Bangladesh like like flies. It was just terrible. There had been a war in Bangladesh. And after yeah. the war was over, um, they had a terrible um, cyclone. It's like their version of a hurricane. And so what happened was um, Ravi called up George and asked George if he could get together some of his famous friends to do a concert and maybe raise money for these starving people in Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. And so he um, he called up Eric Clapton and... Bob Dylan and all of his other friends, and they put on this concert on August 1st, 1971. And um, they did two concerts because that was the only day they could get Madison Square Garden because 
it was booked every other day, and so they had an afternoon concert and an evening concert. And at that point, after the album was released and the movie was released, it raised $10 million back in 1971. But if you add all of the money together that it raised, it's been over $100 million. And um, just think about it. If there were 2 million people starving in Bangladesh, and, and let's say by the time the food and, and the money got there, let's say a million people were saved from George doing the concert, if those million people each had two kids and each of those two kids had two more kids, I mean, just, it's like a math equation. I mean, there's like 8 million or 10 million people who are alive nowadays that would not be alive now if he hadn't done that because that was the money for the food that saved all those people, you know. And so that was really a, you know, a unique and amazing thing to find out more about. And so the next day after I left my friend's place, um, for the first time in 20 years of doing 40 trade shows or festivals a year, all in different cities, for the first time I decided to carpool with a guy who lived in Princeton, New Jersey, outside Princeton, down to Baltimore, three hours, hours down to Baltimore. I'd never done this in 20 years of doing all these shows. So it was such a random thing. It couldn't have been any more random. And uh-huh. I get to this guy's house, and I unload my CDs from the taxi, and I put my CDs and my books, I mean, CDs and my clothes and my flutes in the back of his white van. I sit down in the front seat of his van in the passenger seat and sitting on the dashboard is a cassette tape of the concert for Bangladesh. The day <laughs> after, the thing happened with the DVD, and I'm like, what the heck is this thing doing here? I, w- I didn't think it was funny. I just thought, this is, this is weird. Yeah, you know? and, yeah, and trippy. Yeah, so the, the guy said, well, I actually went to the concert for Bangladesh in 1971. I, I bought two tickets for $3.50 each, and after the concert, I bought this tape, and, you know, a couple of months later, I put these two ticket stubs in this box, and this, they have been in my attic for the last 38 years, and I took this tape out this morning to listen to on the drive down to Baltimore. Huh. I mean, what the heck, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so for three hours, I'm looking at this this tape in front of me going, just thinking to myself, what what is going on here? I mean, this is 24 hours, and this thing has popped up two times in 24 hours. And why was I listening to that song for two or three hours a day for three weeks? Is, right. is this connected in something? Well, nothing happened for um, for a couple of months, and then I ended up moving down to a suburb of Philadelphia. Um, it was Newtown, a northern suburb that was close to New Hope, Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. And... Um, my friend invited me out to play football. I started, I played football. There was one girl who was playing with us, and she turned out to be a yoga teacher. She and I started chatting. We went out on a couple of dates, and on my third date, she asked me what the highlight of my career was, and I said it was when Paul McCartney started a standing ovation for me, and then she asked me, well, did you know that George Harrison used to babysit me? I'm like, oh, my God, we're in a, in a coffee shop. There were people sitting right next to me. You can't imagine what was going on in my head because I instantly, you know, thought back to all those weird things that had happened with the concert for Bangladesh and and George Uh 
couple of months earlier, and I thought, oh, my God, this has to be connected. What in the world are the chances of this? So I, Crazy. as cool as I could, I, yeah, I, as cool as I could, I, I said, well, do you want to tell me a little bit about this? Um, I was really trying to play it cool because inside I was jumping out of my skin. And um, she said, well, my mom and George went to the same yoga ashram and in the early 70s, and when my biological dad and my mom split up, my mom and George started you know, spending more time together. They fell in love after a couple of months and George moved me and my mom to England. I grew up in his big castle. Like, oh my God, what in the world is going to happen next? You know, I mean, can you imagine? Yeah. And of all the places to find her, you're on a football field playing ball. And I know it seemed like love at first sight at first, um, but she's a she's an integral part of all this and kind of pulls everything together. Um, well, at that point, it would be natural for somebody to think, well, this is all it was all about her because you know she had been through four one year relationships one after another that each one of them ended in a midlife crisis and I've never I'd never dated a woman that was emotionally unavailable because I had been in a nine year relationship mm-hmm. um, and before that. I was in a seven-year relationship, so I, I didn't know what it was like to date somebody who was emotionally unavailable, you know? I'd never experienced that. That's it's tough. And the sad fact about it is that, you know, with the way the divorce rate is or just the way life is now, mm-hmm. um, you know, the majority of women in their 30s and 40s have been divorced once or twice, and they're afraid about opening their heart. They're afraid afraid of getting hurt again. It's just the sad reality of of life in our times right now. And right. Um, you know, I was looking for a relationship. I was I wasn't looking to date somebody. You know what I mean? I was used yeah. to being in a relationship for nine years and seven years. You know, so I was looking to have love with somebody. And whenever I would get together with her, there would be this love in the room. I I I knew what love felt like. And I thought that this love was between she and I. And even though she had feelings for me because, you know, of where she was at, that that got in the way. But the love that was in the room with us, I didn't understand it at the time. And I actually only figured this out years later. But that love in the room was George's presence because he loved her because, you know, he was her stepdad for for a period of time, you know. Yeah. And he had a love for me because I didn't know this at the time either, but because he was actually, um, we had numerous past lives that he and I were either brothers or closer than brothers. And so I found out much later, three years after all this started, that um, that we were in the same soul group and, and how we had been connected through so much, so so many different time periods, you know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and you know, some people think we look a little bit alike, and, you know, that's just like a, almost like a side note to the fact of, you know, we had this destiny together. You know, normally it's, it's kind of a unique thing to, to talk about, but when we think of twin flames or, or soulmates or something like that, it's normally in a male-female scenario where, you know, you yeah. meet somebody, you marry this person, and you feel like this is your twin flame, you know? Right. Um, but, you know, in a way, 
George and I are like twin flames. We we both started out being lead guitar players in other people's bands. We were not the singers. And mm-hmm. um, and when we got into our early 20s, we both got deeply interested in meditation and spirituality and, you know, trying to figure out this spiritual aspect of life. Right. And once we got into that, it, it was a driving force in the rest of his life. Right. I mean, his life was, you know, he he used his celebrity of being one of the Beatles as a promotional, not promotional, um, what is the right word to describe it? He used the fact that millions of people around the world, yeah, yeah, he used that platform to share the spirituality that he had learned in India. And he brought that whole concept of meditation and yoga and this concept of self-realization, he brought that to the West. Because if you look back in history, there there was very little known about self-realization or meditation or yoga in America before the Beatles went over there in the mid-60s and, and studied from the Maharishi, you know. Right. And mm-hmm. he made that. That was the driving point that he he was compelled to share that the rest of his life. And, you know, if you look back to it back then in the mid-60s, man, maybe there was maybe one yoga studio in every state, you know. Now, maybe. At the most, maybe, right? one yoga studio in every state. Yeah. Now yeah. There's, in New York, there's a yoga studio on every single street in Manhattan. Every, yes, every there's, there's around one yoga studio. There's around there's 20 million 20, people today practicing yoga yeah. every day. Mm-hmm. I know. Yeah, I read that thing also. And just think, 20 million people a day now are starting every yoga session with a meditation. Absolutely. Because, you know, every time you start yoga, you, you do a, three ohms and you start with a little meditation to put yeah. your mind in a peaceful place. And to, Got to Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so you're saying that even though you and George were from two totally different generations, you still see parallels in your life as is typical of a twin flame relationship. Oh, it's it's unbelievable. Um I read this I read this book on his life and um he uh after after reading Look, I just, I, I couldn't even believe it. I actually showed the book to my mom and she read it just because it was so, um, it was bizarre how many things in his life were absolute parallel to my Jesus. life. Wow, to my fantastic. Life. That's a major yeah, and, clue right there. Oh, for sure, but you know, when, when you think about, you know, the fact that we were in different generations in this life, you know, the other lifetimes that we had our relationships, um, you know, we were in the same generation. So that bond, once we have a bond with somebody, you know, whether it's a love of a friendship love or a romantic love or whatever it is, that, that bond never goes away. That's how you could meet somebody. And in five or ten minutes you could think, oh, my God, this person feels like my sister. Or you just have that certain closeness. You've known them all your life, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it feels like that. Well, yeah, that's a moment of soul recognition when you feel when you feel that familiarity. It's called they, for the listeners. It's called soul recognition. So you get this when you read his book, and it's just really profound. But so you wound up putting this book together, and it's 
put together extremely well, I have to tell you, extremely well written. And I also have to add that the preface is perfect. Um, the way it introduces, because this, this is an unusual topic, and we are, quite frankly, talking about George Harrison of the Beatles. But Robert Friedman wrote this beautiful preface, and there's actually a paragraph on page 212 that supports the preface. And I'd like to read that really quickly sure. to explain to the, the listeners that this is not in any way for David or I to say that David is in some way special because he's doing this. This is simply his chosen path according to his contract before birth. And, of course, there are going to be moments of, oh, my God, and this is crazy because this is not what you expect growing up and learning how to play the guitar. And then one step, one foot goes in front of the other and leads you to this path, and you're just blown away. But to kind of bring it back down to earth, I want to read this one paragraph, David. And this is in a chapter toward the back. It's in chapter 41. And it is 50 years ago. If someone told too many people they were still connected to a grandmother who passed away or to a brother who died at a young age, they may even have been thought to be crazy. Some were institutionalized. Because of this, many people have remained afraid to share their special inner experiences with others. Maybe this book will help to erase that old thought pattern from world consciousness. And as people more and more today are taking responsibility for their own conscious awareness, practicing yoga, meditation, doing whatever it is for them to experience God, be it nature, fishing, music, art, like you do, this is a normal occurrence, and I think we're going to see a lot more instances of it. And just reading your book and all these synchronistic events, and for anybody who is new to that term, you've heard people say nothing is random, there are no accidents, and it's true. What I love about David is that it is a one, by, one after the other account of how he just connected the dots in his life, and all of these events added up to where he is today. So I just want to ask you, David, what, what have some of the reactions to the book been like? Have ever has have a lot of people been open minded? Well yeah, I haven't um I've only experienced beautiful things from people who have read read my book just because um it's kind of like making it okay. It's so wonderful that of all the chapters in that book that's the one that you picked out to to just read. Because a lot of people when I for example, when I do an event like let's say it's a three-hour channeling George Harrison event where I play music, I speak, I show a PowerPoint presentation of all these incredible synchronicities, and I guide people into meditation. Um, during the event, I will ask people, how many of you have ever had an experience where you felt the presence of somebody who you loved who's already crossed over, but you, you felt the presence of them in your life? Always, half of the audience raises their hand. Mm-hmm. It's always like that, you know, and yeah. and so that would, you know, that's that's a big percentage if you think of that around the world, you know, mm-hmm. and so one of the things that I try to explain to them, and, and we do a meditation to connect with this, is that because whatever the Beatles did, there was such an energy behind it because of the influence they had in this physical world, okay, so by George choosing me because of our past life experiences, our past life connection, and because of the talent that I have for playing these two flutes that creates this 
spiritual bridge so people can open up their spirituality inside themselves. Mm-hmm. Because of all those things, and because of the influence that whatever connects to the Beatles, how that has like a life of its own on this planet, the, one of the reasons why George chose me to do this is so that we could be like an example that this is possible for people. Because, you know, the more people hear about that it's possible to have this kind of a relationship with somebody who you love from your past, that opens up people's minds to the thing, well, gee, maybe maybe those feelings that I get once in a while that feels like my grandfather's right next to me or that feels like my, my husband who passed away feels mm-hmm. very close to me. You know what I mean? It would make mm-hmm. people more receptive to have these experiences. And, and so, you know, this is a big part of this whole experience, at least of what I can see up until this point. You know, right. because any time I tell George, well, I, okay, so I, it looks like this is where it's going, and I and he'll say, well, you're not even close. I mean, that, that's what <laughs> stops along the way, but that's you know, you he tells me repeatedly that where this is going is is beyond your imagination. You can't even imagine where this thing is going, and so just enjoy the ride. Oh, um, you know, yeah, I was going to say that. <laughs> just enjoy the ride. Wow. Well, I want to I want to point out that for anybody who would like uh, to develop a relationship on the level we're talking about with a loved one um, who has crossed over, um, it is possible. And you don't have to go through the turmoil that David did. Obviously, David, that was necessary for your growth, yeah. what you went through in 2010. And I do like to tell my audience, I know how difficult it was for you. It's um, You go into deep detail, very descriptive about your your feelings and your sadness and the, and the turmoil you were in. But just to say to you and to the listeners, I'll just say once again, if you made it out of 2010 alive, you're doing okay because that was an extremely tough year with unbelievable emotional upheaval and life, the structure of our lives just breaking up as though there were this massive earthquake. So a lot of us had to rebuild in certain areas of our lives. So this is where you had to do it, and I'm glad that you did. Because I want, to rec- I want to recommend your book to my students as a teaching tool about synchronistic events. How well done I think this book is. Well, thank you so much. I really, I really appreciate all those things you're saying. And, you know, the thing about synchronicities, um, speaking to your listeners, you know, it's like when you have things that repeat in your life, whether it's a dream that repeats or whether it's something in your waking life that's repeating, I mean, if you start recognizing these things, it could be a number, it could be a person, Uh it could be some kind of a clue, but the thing is, is if you actually start writing these things down, that's what I started doing with this stuff, was because um, I, I just started documenting and chronicling all of these things in my life, and mm-hmm. they were all connected to, to George. And the weird thing, well, I don't want to say the weird thing because it's also <laughs> crazy and weird, but I it's know. true, you know. It is. Um, but this number nine kept coming up in my life when I was dating his, his stepdaughter, Marina. Um, she had one of my vocal albums. That was, it was like a rock and roll vocal, positive, spiritual album, you know. 
Um, and I made that right before I left Minneapolis after ending that nine-year nine relationship. But her favorite song on that album was a song called Whatever Road You Choose, and that was song number nine on that album. Because she had put it in the com- her computer, um, she didn't remember it as the title of the song. She kept calling it number nine. She kept saying, oh, I love number nine. I, I listened to number nine like 20 times today, you know, and... And I, I never called my songs by number because I always call them by the name of the song, you know? Yeah, and, and you call them by their names, not their birth order, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, so she would always talk to me about number nine. And I, it must have happened five times before I started really making a connection. And I have to say that since this experience started in 2010, that... The number of times that the number nine appears in my life and with weird things in George's life, it's unbelievable. In book two, which I'm writing right now, which that probably won't be out for like uh, a year or so because book one just came out two weeks ago, Um, but there are like ten pages of of all the crazy coincidences with the number nine. I'll give you like... uh, I'll give you a little one. So for you, for you folks at home who are listening to this, the concert for Bangladesh took place on August 1st, 1971. So write down 8-1, then leave a little space, and then write down 1971. Okay, so obviously, the 8 and the 1 make a 9. There's a 9 in 1971, so circle that 9. And 1971 has a 1, a 7, and a 1. One and seven and one is a nine. There's three nines in, if you take August 1st, 1971, that's three nines. The amount of times in my life that there are three nines connected, there, I've literally filled up ten pages in book two of all of the nines that appear in my life. Okay, now just for a funny example, I'll tell you what happened this week. So I, last week I flew to Los Angeles to do this Barnes & Noble book tour where I have, oh, my goodness, I have nine Barnes & Noble bookstores set up on this tour. What a coincidence, right? So I get my rental car. They give me a car that has three nines in it right next to each other, right? So I pick up my rental car. I take a picture of that. I drive to my friend's house. I'm staying in my friend's spare bedroom. There is a box that was just sent randomly from somebody God knows where, um, and on the UPS sticker, there are three nines big right on the UPS sticker, okay? Mm-hmm. Well, the next morning I get up and I go out to get to my car, and there's a car parked right next to my car facing my car with three nines in that license plate, mm-hmm. okay? Now, this kind of stuff has been going on since 2010. It just doesn't stop. I mean, I it, it's amazing. So... So for you people listening at home, I want to want to connect something to my childhood. And one of the things that after seeing these three nines, and then last year the number 14 started coming in because I didn't realize it at the time, but it had been 14 years since I played for Paul McCartney in 1999 when he started the standing ovation for me, which had something to do with this whole experience, which I'll connect later. Um, yeah. Hey, 19, 1999, there's three nines in 1999 where it all started. And when, in 2013, when all this stuff really started connecting, and I started realizing this pattern, it had been mm-hmm. 14 years. So three nines and a 14 
are giant clues in my life that I have noticed in synchronicities repeating all this time. Now, for you guys at home, I'm going to share something with you that I, that I haven't shared in any of the interviews I've done. But if you have, take a pen and, you know, you've written down that August 1st, 1971. Now I want you to write down the phone number that I was, my family had that I was born into, um, you know, because it was my phone number my first 17 years of my life. My phone number where I grew up in Brooklyn was 718-763-0792. So one more time, it's 718-763-0792. In the first part, take That's your time crazy. Yeah, right. Circle I already the did the numerology. Eight. This is pretty well. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. So if you circle the one and an eight, Write nine underneath that, okay? And then in the six and the three in the next part, circle that six and three and put a nine underneath that. Then in the last part, circle the seven and the two and put a nine underneath that, okay? So now you have three nines plus there's a nine in 0792. So it's actually four, which is the probability of that is even smaller, you know? So there's only two numbers left. The two numbers are 7 and 7, which make 14. So write 14 there. That was the number that I, that I had my childhood, my whole childhood. It was the only phone number we ever had. So after seeing this thing of, of 9s and the 14 for all, all of those years, and to have me, by some random coincidence, make me think of my phone number that I grew up with, and then to do the numerology on it, it showed me that before this life happened, before I came into this life, this whole thing was set up. Yeah. And it's kind of unique because where I grew up in Brooklyn, the closest airport to my house was Kennedy Airport. That's the airport that the Beatles flew into in 1964 when they played on the Ed Sullivan Show. And another thing that connects to the Ed Sullivan Show was that in December, George told me that he wanted me to start booking some events. In um, in February, and I said, "Well, why it, why do you want me to do events in February if if my book doesn't come out until May 22nd? Which May 22nd 522 is another nine, which I didn't set up either. So yeah. I said, no, I would just like you to start doing these events these events in February.' So I said, "Okay, I'll we'll set it up.' So I contacted an agent, and she started booking events, and she booked. Oh my goodness, nine events in February." So the first event was on February 9th, another 9th. And um, two weeks before the event, my agent called me up and said, David, did you know that the 50th anniversary of the Beatles performing on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1964, that anniversary is February 9th? That was, no, the, first concert that we, that was the first concert that we booked of the Nine City Tour. So we were basically starting this whole thing 50 years practically to the date because the last date was added the night before, which was the 8th. But this whole thing had been hinged around that first gig that was booked for February 9th. Right. What are the, you know what I mean? He, he yeah, set I all this stuff mean. up. And That's trippy. Mm-hmm. Well, he, he has made himself known to you in a variety of ways, right? Oh, yeah, you... It's well. It all changed six months ago after I had the big experience that's in the chapter called goodness in right. book one, 
you know the book on, the book that's out right now. Um, but before that, all it all it was, I mean, I didn't I didn't believe in channeling. I would have never thought of calling up a channeler. I mean, it's like that was just completely not part of me at all, you know. Sure. Um, I believed in meditation, and I I've been having spiritual experiences in my meditation over the last you know, 27 years when it started, but, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of, you know, George Harrison from the Beatles, like, being involved in my life, you know. Sure. But, but the unique thing is these things just kept happening, and about a year after the experience, um, I was living with a woman who used to be a painter, and when I moved in, I put my guitars under the bed in the spare bedroom, and there was a painting that had six gray triangles on it. It was a big painting, like three feet by four feet. And I knew that something was going to happen with that painting, even though I had no idea, because I I didn't paint. I couldn't even draw. I couldn't barely draw a stick figure. You know, I was always natural at music, but drawing and art was something that I, I never had a talent for. A couple of months went by, and I woke up one day, and I thought, I'm going to make a painting. I chose four colors, and the four colors were burgundy, gold, brown, and gray. And I made this random painting. It took me 10 hours to do this. I drove my girlfriend at the time crazy with this thing because I was painting it for 10 hours. And um, I'm making a long story short. You can read the whole story in the book. But when I was done, I felt really good about it. And after all the different things that I did, it was the design was three gray triangles surrounded by burgundy, golden brown. And two weeks after I made this painting, my girlfriend at the time bought me a book on George's life. And in that book was a picture of George wearing his favorite jacket that he had custom made for him that he wore at the after party for the concert for Bangladesh. That jacket had only four colors in it. It was a pattern of gray triangles surrounded by burgundy, gold, and brown, the exact four colors that I randomly made a painting that was three feet by four feet. If you saw it, you'd get the chills um, just because it's, um, it's yeah. just beyond, that's beyond coincidence. You include a picture of it on page 148, and the, you have the painting, and then you have the, the print in his jacket is exact. And it's George yeah. standing next to Robbie Shankar. It's just amazing. Yeah. Why, why would I make, first of all, anybody who knew me, the fact that I would even think of making a painting, because I used to joke at how bad I was at art. I mean, I would never think of picking up a paintbrush if I hadn't been living with a woman who used to be a painter. So that was all set up right there. You know, even though I couldn't mm-hmm. see it at the time. Um, but uh, what happened after that was that um, after that we had a birthday party for me, and about 50 people came, and some of my family came down to visit for that. And um, so I took every single person who came into the party. I took each one into the bedroom and showed them a painting and showed them this um, Life magazine that had the, you know, the picture of his favorite jacket. And all there were a lot of people, that was back in 2011, who really, um, they, they thought I'd lost it, you know. I mean, yeah. I, all these things were happening, but, you know, this wasn't a normal thing to talk about. Right. And 
So, I mean, it was not being received well until I showed them that painting and that picture in, in Life magazine. And how could you deny it? Everybody knew I didn't paint. Why in the world would I make a painting? A big painting, four feet by three feet? That's big. That's you big, know? yeah. <laughs> and, um, Unbelievable. So one of the... Yeah, one of the people at the party said, you know, we gotta uh you gotta write up some kind of a synopsis so you can present this. You know, maybe you could have somebody make a movie about it because everybody who's ever heard the story has said it's the most incredible story they've ever heard in their life, you know. And so I said, Okay, well let's write up a synopsis. So she writes up a synopsis synopsis and calls me up and even emails it to me and she says, You know, I'd like to send this to a contact I have in Hollywood who is a literary agent, and so he has, you know, stories made into films. So I said, sure, send it to him. So she sent it to the guy. He calls her back immediately. He said, I want to meet with David Young. Great. So I go online, and I buy a, a ticket on Priceline to fly from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where I was living at the time, to Los Angeles. After I buy the ticket, I go to sleep. I have a dream where George comes to me in this dream, and for the first time, in a year of having these experiences, because this was in 2011, uh-huh. George is joking around with me and smiling at me in the dream. Now, huh. previous to that, I had had three dreams with him where he never cracked a smile. He had the most serious look on his face. I mean, I, I really didn't understand why everything was so serious. You know what I mean? Because sure, it, it was... Like, just take the most serious face you ever saw from your dad or something, you know. Yeah. It was just so serious. And um, so finally, he, he's smiling at me in my dream, and we're playing hide-and-go-seek in this recording studio. And I finally catch up with him, and he's on the other side of this big glass that, you know, separates the room, so this way a musician in one room can see the engineer in the other room. Right. Standing on the other side of the glass, he looks like he's in his 30s, like... In that similar time period is that picture from the concert for Bangladesh, you know? Yeah. And he says to me, I like to play tennis with soft grass behind me. Mm. Now I'm thinking, did I just hear him right? All this time, and this is what he's, this is the first thing he's going to really say to me, because the other experiences that I had with him were mainly spiritual experiences where he was transmitting his energy to me, you know? Right. So I said, what did you say? And he said, he's trying not to crack up. He's saying, he said, I like to play tennis with soft grass behind me. He bursts out laughing and he disappears right in front of me. And I wake up, I asked, I wake up my girlfriend, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. I said, um, you're not going to believe this. And I told her what George said to me. And, and she said, well, can we go back to sleep now? It's 3 o'clock in the morning. I said, okay, yeah, fine, go back to sleep. Two weeks later, I went to the airport to fly to Los Angeles. After I checked in my bath curbside, I was walking through the airport, and there was one of those big magazine shops that they have, all those different magazines. Mm-hmm. And George Harrison is on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. It's September 2011. Of huh. course, I'm going to buy that magazine. So I bought right. it, and I went to my gate to sit down. And in that magazine was a picture of George playing tennis with this grass behind them. I had yeah. a dream two weeks before the magazine came out. 
And, it's pretty um, funny. He's in full swing with that tennis racket. It's a great picture. That's included in the book, too, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. I know it. And you know what? Here's another thing. If, if you look at that picture, right, there, there's, only, there's only two words on that whole page in the original Rolling Stone magazine. There's only two words on the whole page that are in bold, okay? And yeah. those words are forever young, okay? Mm-hmm. My nickname is David Forever Young because I look younger than I am, and because I was in the spa industry for so long, people would call me, you know, David Forever Young because I look younger than I am. Yes. You do look a lot younger. And, <laughs> yeah, and you and you talk about this, it's, it's, it's just amazing, all the synchronicities. But tell you what, I want to get into a few more things in this book, but first we're going to take a commercial break real quick, okay? Sure. All right. We'll be right back with David Young right after these messages. Don't go away. The odds of a young girl being discovered by an industry insider while singing to herself pumping gas? One in 300 million. The odds of the daughter of a clergyman from Severn, Maryland, spending 11 weeks at number one on the U.S. singles charts? One in 19 million. The odds of going on to win six Grammy Awards? One in 1.4 million. The odds of selling over 40 million records? One and 800,000. The odds of this musician and performer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 88. I'm Tony Braxton, and I encourage you to learn more at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Autism Speaks, it's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Explore new areas of interest, expand your knowledge, and gain clarity about your life's purpose at the Ocala Center. Affectionately known as OIC, the Ocala Center, just two blocks south of Town Square, offers workshops, classes, healing meditations, and special events for the Ocala, Gainesville, and Central Florida spiritual community. Check out our calendar of events at OcalaInnerCenter.com. And if you're looking for a place for your next workshop or seminar, go to OcalaInnerCenter.com and give Gene a call. Hello, everyone, and we are back with David Young, author of Channeling Harrison, book one. And the book is put together really um, interestingly, David, in that you put it into 42 very quick chapters, so it's an easy read. There's lots to learn about all of the events that took place, but it's um, very easy to read. So you put it in 42 chapters, and then in chapter 15 is this awesome experience with Paul McCartney, and you had a deep desire, much like I did as well when Linda died, um, you wanted to give him a gift of one of your CDs to help him heal. Tell us that amazing story. Well, I lived in L.A. at the time. I had sold a half a million CDs by that point. And because so many different hospitals and healing centers and wellness centers were using my music constantly and talking about you know, the healing benefits of this relaxing music that I created, um, I I just wanted to contact Paul so I could get him one of my CDs. He's a human being. He could he could enjoy the benefits of my my music while he's healing from the loss of his beloved wife, you know. And mm-hmm. so everybody who I contacted didn't have a contact to get to Paul McCartney. So I said this prayer, you know, I said, you know, God, um, 
if my music is supposed to get called, you know, it's, it's in your hands, may the blessings be, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, nothing happened for six months. And then I got, uh, I was performing at the Atlanta Gift Show, and they asked me if I would perform at this event for Heather McCartney, which was Paul McCartney's daughter, his older daughter. And it was, uniquely enough, it was, um, he had adopted Heather. Um, and so it was kind of unique that later on I would, the only little girl that George adopted, you know, mm. it was just, that was kind of unique. And one of the things that put me in, um, part of my experience was the fact that I had, I hadn't legally adopted um, the daughter who I'd lived with for nine years, you know, um, mm-hmm. but I, you know, I loved her like she was my own daughter. And so the three of us had each had that experience of adopting a little girl. And so anyway, so Heather was in her 20s. She was an artist and a designer. And so I got hired to play music at this event. And, you know, Paul loved it. He'd never seen anybody play Two Fruits at one time. And God, he was just smiling and giving me the thumbs up like for about 15 minutes as he was trying to get across the room to where the press conference was being held. And there was no way he could have been any, any friendlier to me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so then at the end of the event, he, he started a standing ovation for me, told everybody how awesome he thought I was. And um, so, you know, I gave him one of my CDs, um, and the CD that I gave him was called Bliss. And it was flute with harp with some Native American and Celtic percussion and so it wasn't necessarily a meditation CD, but it was a spiritual CD that had some rhythm to it. And um, apparently Paul fell in love with it and played it in his office, you know, for months on repeat just because he just loved the energy and the vibe of it. And I had no idea how that would play a part in the story um, later on in my life. But, you know, that's how, um, you know, that's how the whole thing with Paul started me. I mean, it was, his energy was just absolutely incredible. And what I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe how friendly he was to me. Um, I mean, you could tell by the look on someone's face when they're happy to see somebody. He looked at me like I was like a long-lost friend from somewhere. Um, but, I, you know, George later explained that to me, that um, we were in the same soul group. You know, George and I and, and Paul were in the same soul group, and that's, that's why you felt that connection. That's why I felt the connection with Paul when he came in the room. Like He wasn't looking at me like just some stranger at the other side of the room. He was looking at me like there was a recognition there, you know. Um, I, don't know if he, I don't know if he still remembers that because I can't imagine all the people that he meets, but it was, a, it was a very unique experience, you know. It says in the book, this was his first public appearance since Linda died. It was only six months after her death. And he was there to support Heather, right? Yeah. I, I have to tell you something. that there's, there's a comical part of this whole story. Um, I was married at the time. That's when I was in that seven-year relationship. Right. And my ex was very beautiful, and there was this young guy who was the only young guy at the event. He was in his early 20s. And most of the people at the event were in their 40s, 50s, and 60s because it was, you know, a gift show event, you know, the wholesale business. And so 
this young guy, while I was playing, was hitting on my wife. And I'm not a, I'm not a jealous guy at all, you know. But, you know, I'm watching this, and it's going on for like 15, 20 minutes. And it's, it's just kind of strange because, you know, I got my flutes in my mouth. I really can't say anything because I'm playing the flutes, you know. And um, so eventually I realized, because the McCartney family videographer kept filming this young guy, I realized that this is Paul's son, James. Uh-huh. And so I get the idea, okay, well, I asked, I asked, you know, when he went to take a walk, I asked my wife to get me uh, one of my CDs so I can sign it to Heather, you know, because this is, you know, her big day, you know. Anyway, so I, I sign it to Heather, best of luck, David Young, and I put it next to me on my sound speakers, so I figured the next time that I see her brother, you know, come around hitting on my wife that I'll just, you know, I'll give, give it, it to him, you know what I mean? Right. So he can give it to his sister Heather, you know? Well, he sees me give my wife a kiss, and he disappears. He doesn't show up the rest. I didn't see him the whole rest of the event, which was like another hour, you know? So when Paul came up to me at the end in front of everybody, there were probably 150 or 200 people. There was just a lot of people, you know? Yeah. And, and so he, you know, he gives me this wonderful compliment. He shakes my hand, and I... And I, I remembered that I had the CD that was signed to Heather, Best of Luck, David Young. So I, I pick up the CD off my speaker, which is right next to me. I handed, I handed to um, Paul, and he looks at the CD, and he looks at me, and, and I could see the look of puzzlement on his face. That look was how the heck did that guy sign the CD in front of me? And I know I didn't see him sign the CD. You know? Right. And so um, he looked at me, and he looked at me like, how did you do that? It looked like it was a magic trick, you know what I mean? And, sure. um And then he snapped himself out of it, you know, and, you know, we said goodbye and, you know, but that was, that was a really, that was a, a funny moment in the whole interaction there. Well, I thought it was great, especially since he was there to support his daughter. It wasn't about him, but he did that yeah. for her. And, and it's a big to-do when he steps out of his house. And you wrote – it was a nice touch that you wrote the CD to Heather, and you see the look of appreciation in his eyes once he gets over his shock. But at the end, what you say is um, he at first – he he came into the room and he had he was with Heather and he he nudges her and points at you and says hey look the flute guy is here so he's calling you the flute guy he knows who you are he recognizes you so and towards the end um, it says finally they were they were there they were right in front of me Paul suddenly stopped to talk to me and quieted down the whole crowd the room was instantly silent he looked at me smiled and said very well done thank you very much sir I replied. And time stood still. Then he goes on to say, this was extremely well done, but you're not getting the praise you so deserve. He then started clapping for me. The whole crowd joined in, figuring that since Paul McCartney appreciated my music, they had better applaud as well. And that's how he got your standing ovation going. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it was, it was definitely uh, it was a surreal moment. You know? Yeah, um, that's because, magical. You know, I got to tell you that you know we're all humans, but there are certain humans that are really special and really have an incredible energy that surrounds them. And, um, 
it was amazing to see the charisma and the influence that him walking into a room had on everybody in the room. It was, I mean, it was like royalty or something like this. It was, it was. It just, is royalty. Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing, and here this this royal guy thinks I'm cool enough to, you know, stop this whole event and really want to honor me and want everybody in the room to know that he thought I was was great, you know. And so the thought of having four guys in the band with that kind of charisma, I, I can't imagine it because I, I could see I could see what happened in that room when he walked in. Even before he got to the room, I could see what, as he was walking down the hall towards the room, the people lined up in the hallway. It was, it was like Beatlemania all over again. Except sure. Instead of, the, instead of the girls being 15, the girls were 60 or 75 years old. Right. Never, there was no difference. It was screaming. Yeah. It was that same look of amazement on people's faces. It was it was really incredible, that's, you know. That's one famous man, absolutely, with global influence. Well, let me, let's talk about this other thing. I love Chapter 20, where you had three miracles in a day. And lyrical, yes. lyrics came to you while you were performing. And normally yes. they would immediately turn into a song, but the yes. music didn't come at that time. Tell us how the music arrived to complete the song. And that cute little story with John, the engineer, and the blue light in the studio and... and that really cool story. So this happened about, I think about five or six weeks after I was dating the stepdaughter, and her name is Marina in the book, you know. Um, I had sworn I was never going to write another song with words again because, you know, every time I would write songs, I would want to record them. Every time I would record a vocal album, it would cost me ten or $15,000, and because I was known for playing the two flutes, um, People, if they had to decide to buy one or the other, they would always buy the flute music because they could meditate to the flute music. And that was so important in the healing industries that I was exhibiting in, you know. Right. So I decided I would never write another song again the rest of my life because I just didn't want to open myself up to a disappointment and I didn't really have the extra $15,000 to make another CD. I needed to, to be more conscientious of my money because the economy was all messed up, you know? Uh-huh. And so, you know, I swore I would never write another song with words, and you know what happens whenever you say the word never. Never. It, means it's just, it just means it's a matter of time. That's like you saying to the universe, I, I dare you to make this happen, so I'm going to say I'm never going to do it. So start dating her, and, you know, even though she was emotionally unavailable, I started writing this song that I didn't really want to write, but I just couldn't stop myself. So what ended up happening is I wrote 25 songs for this woman, and I recorded them in 30 days. That That is ridiculous. It, it really is ridiculous. It's not normal. And any time I would have a thought of anything that I wanted to say to her, within a minute, that sentence was a melody, and within 15 minutes, a complete song was written. So anything, I mean, every day there was another song coming out of me like like magic. Yeah. And there was this one, one set of lyrics that I wrote that I could never come up with any music for, and it was puzzling to me and almost frustrating to me because I, it made no sense. And so I kept that lyric on a piece of paper on the nightstand that was right next to my bed, and the words were, I wish I really knew what life was all about, why some people have so much 
and others live without. And if I ever understand all the struggles I've been through, then maybe I'll understand why I'm still missing you. I wish I really knew why this world had so much pain and why we live and why we die and then do it all again. And if I ever understand all the struggles I've been through in, in this life, then maybe I'll understand why, why I'm still missing you. And so no words came to that for two weeks. And every morning I would wake up and look at him and think, what is going on with this, you know? Anyway, after two weeks I had gone, you know, gone to sleep on this random night. I woke up in the middle of the night and I had this nudge, this this gut feeling to go look at those words. So I put the words, you know, in my hands in front of me. I'm sitting in my bed. It's absolute silence. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. There's no cars going by. It's absolute silence. And... I, in a little sentence of frustration, I said out loud, how is the music supposed to go for these words? At that exact moment, the spirit appeared off to my right, and this spirit played guitar for me. And I have to tell you, I'd never experienced anything like that. Uh-huh. Yes, remember, I, I was afraid of ghosts at this time in my life. Right. And, you know, but because the spirit played guitar for me, it, it relaxed me. Fortunately, I couldn't see his face. I just could, you know, and I heard it totally, totally clear. And you knew it was there, yeah. Yeah, and so the music that the Spirit played for me went perfect those words. And so that became the song, I'm Still Missing You. Hmm. And so I fell asleep. You know, I recorded first on a little tape deck. I fell asleep. The next morning, I called up the studio that I'd already recorded for songs, I think it was four or five songs, I called them up, I went into the studio, while I'm recording that song, my headphones are on, and I literally said to myself, inside my mind, I I said, this music sounds exactly like something that George Harrison would have played, and at that exact moment, this light appeared in the room next to me, it was about three feet wide, Um, it was glowing and sparkling, and it had this blue tone to it, but it was like blue and silver, it was... I've never seen anything like it in my life. I mean, I had seen little sparkles of light over the past, the previous, you know, 27 years that I've been meditating, but those little sparkles only came for like a millisecond. This thing hovered hovered right next to me for six seconds while I'm playing with the headphones on, trying not to make a mistake on my guitar, you know? Hmm. So Mm -hmm. I knew... Because of the timing of the whole thing, I knew that this was this was connected, and this was this was George, you know, yeah. because the timing of it was so perfect. Yeah. And then what happened is that um, I kept looking for a guitar sound that I couldn't I couldn't get. I couldn't make my electric guitar sound the way I wanted it to sound. So I asked the engineer if I could use one of his guitars, and he said, "I have 150 vintage guitars from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Which one do you want?" I mean, these guitars were everywhere, everywhere you'd look. Uh, You'd open up a closet. There'd be 20 guitars in the closet. And so I said, I don't care. Just give me me a clear-sounding guitar that sounds like a bell. I mean, the whole whole thing of the bell comes back later in the story, um, incredibly enough. So he brings this random guitar out to me. It's in case so... So right, but I want, like I want to add, though, that this is not a person that you share intimate thoughts with that all this, all these synchronistic stuff that's happening with George Harrison and where he, or that you were just thinking of him. You just asked to borrow a guitar, and he went and, and selected one on his own, right? Exactly. 
So he gets, okay, go ahead. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. So he brings yeah. this case out about 10 minutes later. This case is so old it looks like it's been in the ocean for three years. I mean, it's falling apart. And he opens it up, puts it on the floor right in front of me, and I said, what is this? I've never even seen a guitar like this. And he said, it's a 1955 Gretsch. I said, well, what is it called? Is it a Les Paul? Is it a Stratocaster? I mean, what is it called? He said, well, this is the George Harrison model because it's the exact guitar that George played in the Beatles. And um, after the Beatles got so famous, they renamed the guitar the George Harrison model. And so that's what it's known as right now. It's been known forever since the, the 60s. And it was the exact sound that I had been searching for. And I love this stuff. Yeah, it was pretty... Uh, you can imagine <laughs> in that 24-hour... That was a really magical 24-hour period, you know? Yeah. Back-to-back um, back miracles. Yeah. Unbelievable. So, and I what? wanted to tell... I wanted to tell Marina about it, his, you know, his stepdaughter, because from my logical thinking was saying, this has all got to do with her. I didn't think that this was anything to do with me. I didn't know about our past life connections at that point. All I knew is that I'm dating this woman that basically grew up in his house, in his, in his castle, yeah. and my common sense was saying, you really like her. George really wants her to be happy. And so he's doing these things to help David through music and through synchronicities and whatever to help me get through to her. That's that's what it looked like. I had I didn't think this was about me. Right. I thought it was all about her. You know, that's what my common sense was telling me, you know. So mm-hmm. when when the relationship with her ended after two months, I thought, well, that's got it. my relationship with George is I'm sure that's gonna end too. I didn't mean, honestly I didn't really look at it as a relationship. I just thought that my synchronicities that he was manifesting in my life was were going to end because I thought it was all about her. I was incredibly surprised, um, after she and I ended the relationship well that that I was meditating and he came into my inner vision I was really, really depressed. I was in a terrible place, you know, because that breakup with her happened five months after me ending a nine-year relationship. So I'm still healing over that one. And here right. I had that I was, it was horrible, you know. And so he came into my meditation. He reached out his hand. I, he shook my hand. This electricity went in through his hand, into my hand, up my arm, filled my whole body, and I woke up two hours later. And... um I call that the electric handshake just because I don't really know what else to call it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the experiences never stopped. I was really surprised they continued because of thinking it was all about her and not about me. Right. No, there's more for you to do. How has your perception of miracles changed since all of these events started happening? Well, there are times where tenuous, you know, if I say that it's blown my mind, it's blown my mind ten times over. Like sometimes when I'm doing doing events and I'm trying to explain what it was like having this experience, sometimes I say, okay, just imagine how big your imagination is right now, right? And I want you to grab one corner of your imagination and I want you to fly around the planet three times. So stretch your imagination so it's so big it could go around the planet three times. That's what 
I have had times like that it, it feels like this is how my imagination is being stretched, you know. It's um I, I do I do things I don't understand why I'm doing them and then you know, I read in a Beatles book a year later that these exact crazy things that I'm doing in recording studios are the exact crazy things that the, that George and John Lennon did in the recording studio with their guitars, you know what I mean? Right. Why would I do mm-hmm. these things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, is that enough of an answer, or do, do you want more about that? No, no, that's perfect. There's, there's always just, you know, we, we, we see miracles as one way, but when you experience them like this, especially in close range to each other with in succession, like that, um, I found that the more it happened, because I, I study and teach A Course in Miracles, and as you do study that book, you start to see a lot of miracles, a lot of synchronicities, nature, God speaking to you in different ways. And it just, it, the more it happened, the more peaceful I felt. And so you yeah. can kind of rely on miracles. If they're not, miracles are normal, they're a normal expression of God's love for us. And if they're not happening, it's because we're blocking them with a negative thought or a belief. And I just wondered how your perception had shifted with this seeming, you know, pummeling of, of miracles in your life. That's all. Well, the one that we're talking about today, Channeling Hansen Book One, um, mm-hmm. that took me, that was three years of experiences, you know. In, after George got me the publishing deal, he got me the publishing deal, I think it was in August of 2013, through this bizarre thing, um, and we could talk about that after. But, um, so from August 2013 to October, uh, my publisher and I were going through these things, editing it. But once I got this publishing deal, synchronicities went from having happening usually once a month, generally, to they went to every two weeks, every week, twice a week, you know, once a day twice a day, five times a day. It was such a continuous thing of miracles that I didn't have, and there was not enough time in the day for me to do what I had to do with doing my performances or whatever I was doing at festivals and to type out all these miracles so I could send them to my publisher. So I kept a notebook and I would write one sentence so I wouldn't forget a miracle. Because right. there were so many miracles that happened, I couldn't remember all of them. Because I would go through my notes from two weeks before and be like, oh, my God, I completely forgot about that. Because I had been living through all the miracles that happened that day or the day before. It was like life became so surreal. It, it, was, just, it was just so magical. I just, I'd never experienced anything like that. It was like one thing for something to happen every month or two, but for it to be a constant thing... Was, you know, really blowing my mind. So my my publisher said, look, if this book is going to come out, you know, we have to manufacture the books. These things take time. And, you know, we're going to have to have a whole, all these marketing things and advertising. So so when the book comes out, there's some promotion for it. You know, you, you have to stop these stories. We, you can't send me two chapters every day because the book already has so many chapters. You know what I mean? It's, um, and I said, well, we have to do something with this stuff because every day it's it's more and more incredible. I, I, I swear I actually had thoughts where there's no way that anything could top what just happened today. 
And then the next day, something more incredible would happen. And so I said, okay, then we're going to just, if you have to cut it off for these stories, then all the stories after this point are going to go into book two. And he said, fine. And, you know, so now I'm, I'm three-quarters of the way into book two, and that whole thing with with the nines and the phone number that I, I shared in the first hour that we were talking, you know, that'll mm-hmm. be in book two. Um, and, you know, it's um, at, a, at a certain point it gets to the thing where it's so overwhelming to your mind to think that this, this surreal experience, it's taking over my life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think George wanted book one to be the best it could be. Um, and so he just wanted to continue these magical experiences so I would have more stuff in the book. And I also think he wanted me to be completely sure that I knew that it wasn't all about Marina because, you know, the, all the magical things that happened while I was dating a stepdaughter, you know, it's an amazing love story. I mean, there's a, a companion double album that, that can be purchased along with the book that have all the songs that I wrote for his stepdaughter along with some of the song, songs that he and I wrote together. And that's not instrumental. It's a vocal album, and it's like acoustic rock. You know, it's not hard rock at all, but it's kind of like, you know, you know, there are some ballads on there, but there are fun songs. And, you know, if, if the, if, I don't want to say if the Beatles were around today, it'd be similar, but I'm just trying to say that it's, it's fun acoustic rock that's not too heavy. And, you know, it's nice for for people who grew up with the Beatles, they would enjoy it, you know. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just amazed that I wanna I wanna talk about in terms of the way it all pulls together. We've all gone through major shifts in the past several years. We had the Ascension, December twenty first, two thousand twelve. There are also other significant dates, and you have them in the book as uh, factors in this story, which was. 10, 10, 10, 12, 12, 12. Explain quickly why these dates are so significant to the story and to George Harrison. Well, the significance of 10, 10, 10 was that the day that I met Marina, his stepdaughter, was on 10, 10, 10. And honestly, at that point in time, I really didn't have uh, – a big connection or affinity with numbers or dates or anything like this. I just, um, it just wasn't part of me, you know. Mm-hmm. And so she had um, found out that 10-10-10 was this really, really magical day in history. Um, and it was all over the Internet, and she was all excited to share with me that we had met on this magical day when sup- supposedly this heavenly force was reappearing on the planet for the first time in thousands of years. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I didn't, I, I didn't take that too seriously. Well, I, it would, you know, what I'm saying that's not where I, what I was about back then. Now, right after I've seen these patterns of numbers, so that they help connect things for me. You know, now I really am very cognizant of how numbers, especially numbers that repeat in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so yeah. that was that was the uniqueness about ten, ten, ten. You know, and then two years later, on twelve, 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 
George's sitar teacher and one of his closest friends, Ravi Shankar, passed away. Yeah. And so I had been, I just got back to New York after a road trip of playing at some festivals somewhere. I was, I don't even know why I was listening to a radio station I never, ever listened to. But, you know, it was another one of those synchronicities. I was, there was this beautiful sitar music being played on a station that I never listened to. And at the end of this long, long song, they said, well, that was Ravi Shankar, and there's going to be a celebration concert for his life in Brooklyn on Monday night. And, you know, you can read all about that in the chapter. It, it would be yeah. too hard for me to explain the whole thing, but the synchronicity that, that came out of that was mind-blowing. I mean, yeah. that's like one in, a, one in a billion chance, you know? Mm-hmm. It's. It, it, I love that one. I love the one about Tom Petty. You um, at certain points, there's the uh, chapter. It says it's going to take money. Or the, the part where you're saying, okay, you have this idea. You need you need to do this, and you need funding, and then funding arrives. But then at one point, you wanted to get in touch with with Tom Petty because Tom Petty was close friends with George and they worked together in the Traveling Wilburys in the 80s. So yeah. I just well, love to demonstrate that you just follow the guide in question and without doubt and you get off a plane, you make a phone call and then you go ahead with the story. Yeah, I, I landed in Los Angeles. I, the whole time I'm on the plane, I'm, I have it in my head um, that it's important for me to contact Tom Petty because Tom Petty and George Harrison were close friends, and in the uh, in the the whole uh, the DVD of about George's life, the HBO special, you know, Living in the Material mm-hmm. World. Um, George, um, Tom Petty was one of the narrators because he was a close friend of of George's, and so this whole thing about Tom Petty is in my head. And I get off the plane, I get my rental car, I'm driving from Hollywood over to the Valley. And I'm, I keep thinking, I need to meet somebody who is connected to Tom Petty. And I get to the valley and I meet my friend for lunch. I had hadn't had, I had never had lunch with this guy. We were friends for years and years. It must have been for 15, 20 years. But we never yeah. had lunch. And on this random day, I decided to, you know, set up to have lunch with him. I he just popped into your room. head, right? Yeah, he just popped into my head. So I, you know. Um, I get to the lunch with him and, you know, I said, you know, you know all about my career because, you know, he knew about what I had been doing, you know, and the CDs and the flutes and everything. I said, you know, what do you do? I don't even know what you do for a living. He says, well, I'm the drum technician for Tom Petty, <laughs> you know. Um, what? <laughs> yeah. Did you fall out of your chair sideways or what? <laughs> I I could have. I could have. I think I just <laughs> smiled and cracked up and, you know. Well, as, you, as you read the book, it's like your jaw just drops. You're like, oh, my God, like, this is crazy. Um, even though I experience this every day in my own life, to read it about read about it in someone else's is pretty cool. You know, it really is cool to see this unfold. And I'm sure we're all looking forward to what's in the second book. That's going to be awesome. And, well, you also have a number of offers that you have included for the readers in the back of the book. You want to go through the, these offers that you've made to help people interact and get some of your music? 
Yeah, you can. Um, there's just a link at the back of the book where you can get three of my instrumental music compositions that are from my various CDs, and um, you just get these three MP3s, and all you have to do is go on, you know, go to the website. Go to that part, to the website, and you get that, and you can get three songs that are from the vocal soundtrack of the double album called Chandler Harrison, and one of those songs is. Um, the song I'm Still Missing You, the one that, you know, he wrote that ex- with that story that we just said when he came into right. my bedroom, he played this music, the words went perfect with it. That's mm. one of the songs you get as well. Okay. Well, the uh, website is davidyoungmusic.com, but there's a special address that you can only get from inside the book. So I would encourage everybody, read the book and learn about synchronicities if you're not familiar with them, but just enjoy watching how the story unfolds for David and for George as well, which is still a continuation of his mission. So it's very important. You can also, if you have had experiences with loved ones of your own who've passed away, David would like to hear about it, and there's an address included where you can send your stories and experiences. That's a lovely gesture, David. A lot of people don't like to talk about these because they're afraid of rejection or that they'll be criticized about the possibility of such things. But if you're a um, consistent listener of this show, you know what I do, and yes, it's very normal, and these are all things that happen on a daily basis if you are open to them. And I have the music, actually, and I will be playing one of those songs for you at the end of the show. But what's coming up next for you, David? You're still touring for the book and and for your music. And you mentioned that I, I was intrigued. When you have an event, you bring in storytelling, meditation, as well as the music. It seems quite uh, impactful and profound. Tell us what an, a normal event for you goes like. Well, there are usually three-hour events. And... Um, you know, I, I show pictures of, like, these crazy things like the painting and his jacket and um, a lot of the different synchronicities that I've taken pictures of along the way. And so I do that. I play music. I guide people through meditation. And it's really um, incredible how people have um, – there's something about the, the music and the energy that we create at these events that just – it just makes people feel very safe and open to having allow themselves to have the space to have a spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. And um, it's been very unique. I mean, I I really um, I never saw any of this coming. And um, you know, I started being guided inwardly when I was doing the meditation to encourage people to open up their heart to connect and think of somebody who while they were alive that you loved, you know, and somebody who you really miss. And then I would guide them through the meditation and playing the flute and the different music that I would have in the background. I would, um, the music seemed to take it to an even higher level, so I would stop talking and just play more flute and these magical things were happening for people. And so after the meditation was over, I would um, uh, 
I'd asked if anybody had anything that they wanted to share. I couldn't believe what people were sharing. There was one woman in New York who said that her husband had passed away in 9-11 and she hadn't oh. seen him since 9-11 and he came back to her and hugged her and they reconnected. There was another woman who both of her parents had passed away a long, long time ago mm-hmm. and they had both um, passed in a in a car accident, and she hadn't seen either of them for, I don't know, if it was 20 or 30 years. It was a very long time. And so both her mom and her dad came back to her during the meditation. And, I mean, there were so many things that because they they died so suddenly and unexpectedly, there were so many things that she got to tell her mom and dad, you know. Mm. And I, I hear these stories, like, every single time, um, Every time we do an event, there was a, a couple of weeks ago, my friend, who's a woman about 65, she brought her husband, who was a very quiet man. And so after the event was completely over and I was, you know, getting ready to leave, he came over to me. He said, you know, I didn't want to share my story because it was so personal. But during the meditation, my mom came to me and first she hugged me and then we danced. And I hadn't seen my mom since I was six years old when my mom died. Wow. And it was the, it was the night before Mother's Day. It was wow. Saturday night. Um, and so at these events that I do, um, sometimes I see these light beings in the back of the room over the heads of the people in the audience. And their energy is loving. It's It's beautiful, you know. Yeah. And so I asked George, well, who are these light beings? What, and what is this? Why are, why are they at the event? What, what, is this, what is this all about? And George explained that um, when people sign up to come to our, our events, he doesn't call them my events because they're our events, you know. Sure. Um, when, they, when, they come to the, when they sign up for the events, because of his viewpoint of how he can see Somehow he can see everything from the viewpoint where he's in, you know. Um, oh, yeah. And that, that's, how, that's how he can set up these synchronicities in my life, but how he also works with other people. And so he he sees the people who have registered to come to the event, and he contacts their loved ones in heaven, and he brings them along to the event, and these are the light beings that I saw, in the back of the room over the heads of the audience. And that's why people are, it's so, I don't know if I should use the word easy, but why this works so beautifully is because we're working this thing together. Yeah. No, it's, I think that's a good word for it. I really do. You know, and I am, I have to say, I have been so surprised at how many people I'm who will tell me a miraculous story of how they felt George or John Lennon had communicated with them at one point in time. And these are, you know, respectable, spiritual, grounded people that I really would not expect to hear something like this from. Sure. You know? mm-hmm. and, and so one of the key things that's... Um, that's in my book is that when I went to Hawaii and I had this, this 
really huge experience. It's in the chapter called Goodness towards mm-hmm. the end of the book. Um, you know, I realized that, you know, he he had achieved a state of consciousness way higher than wherever I was at after 30 years of meditating, and um, he had the enlightenment. And so there was it was irrelevant if there's a difference between the enlightenment of one saint and another saint. I mean, who, who's really in charge of measuring what kind of enlightenment somebody had? But, right. you know, I knew that he, um, you know, we've heard about the enlightenment, we've read about enlightenment that people had, certain people had 2,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago, and he dedicated his life to spirituality and towards spreading goodness and spirituality through everything that he did in his music and in every way possible. And he achieved the enlightenment the same way that we put the people who we know who have been enlightened in the past on a, on a much higher level. Yeah. And, and so part of my, my job in, in all this was to write this book so... Um, because I did experience it, and it was it was so so much bigger than I was, and I felt like I had a cup standing in front of a waterfall, and it was yeah. uh, it was incredible. It was uh-huh. it was beyond anything I'd ever experienced, and you know he um, he's not just one of the Beatles. He he rose in spiritual consciousness, and he he has the ability to do really really amazing beautiful spiritual things and you know the people who have been helping me at my events you know like different promoters and stuff the magical things that started happening with George uh-huh. once they started becoming part of all of this I mean those things are going to be in book two it's, and it's the fun thing for me is when I mean that's happened to I think four people four different people who have promoted different events for me, when they share these things with me, they're so excited because they're telling me things like things that I experience and it's happening to them, you know. Yeah. Um, because it's really it's really about the fact that, you know, George has, has communicated to me that, you know, he's getting this direction from above, you know, from God or spirit, whatever you want to call you know, the source. He he usually calls it the source. Um, every once in a while he'll call it God just so I, because that, that I resonated with the word God more than I yeah. resonated with the word the source, you know. Me too. But mm-hmm. these are, the, these are the, the direction that he's being given because the source doesn't want this old, unnecessary taboo of people being hesitant to talk about the love they feel and the connection that they feel with their loved ones who are in heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not, not necessary if you think about it. For thousands of years, the Native Americans, all the Aboriginal people of the world, they all believed that their ancestors were guiding them and helping them to survive. Mm-hmm. And why is it only in modern times that that is taboo or has been taboo to talk about. Why is that? I mean, that, that's, that's completely ridiculous. You know, if you think about it, 500 years ago, 
all of the educated people and the scientists and everybody who was really respected, they all believed that the world was flat. And apparently, they were wrong. <laughs> so but for the people who, who don't believe in, in life after this life, by the fact that, that George Harrison from the Beatles, who gets a lot of attention no matter what he does, the fact that George Harrison, to me, there's life after death. How else would he be doing all this stuff in my life, you know? And the experiences that I've had, these, these experiences when people get to read about them or get to hear about them, like on a radio show like what you have, it expands a person's imagination and expands the possibilities in their mind, you know? There is no reason, there is nothing stopping anybody from reconnecting with their loved ones who have already crossed over. That love never goes away. That's the same reason why when you meet somebody who you immediately have a connection with them, and after five minutes you feel like you've found your long-lost sister. Mm-hmm. There's a reason for that. You have energy with you and that person. There is love that's between you and that person. And that love is always going to exist. And so there's like this imaginary wall if you just think about those two words, imaginary wall, it doesn't exist. It's imaginary. Mm-hmm. It's just been, that wall has been placed inside our consciousness by religion because religion wanted to create a, a fear that the only way that you could have, you know, your restriction. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah it, it's placed there. Yeah. So this way... Um, it would make people afraid of the truth, but there's no reason to be afraid of the truth. How could you be afraid of love? I mean, that would be like being afraid of your grandmother. How could you and be afraid if you had a exactly. grandmother who loved you? And then you know, first, the first you... thing you do is, is convince them they're not worthy of it, and they have yeah. to continually work hard to be worthy of it. I always say that religion is for people who are afraid of going to hell, and spirituality is for those of us who have already been there. <laughs> Boy, is that the truth? <laughs> you know? If, oh, if, man, that was if great. If your religion is compassion, forgiveness, acceptance, that is the essence of spirituality, and that we are all one, we are not separate, we are all connected. All of us. Yeah. We are all brothers and sisters, you know? Yeah, for sure. It's like if you look at a human body, all the parts inside the human body, they all work together so our body works. Right. You know, and, and so now just compare your human body to the world. All the people of the world, we all are part of this one thing. Mm-hmm. Moving in concert, and then, for lack of yeah, a better Yeah, for word. sure. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and that was something that George and John totally believed in. They totally believed that, that we were all part of this oneness. Hmm. You've got me curious you know, about them now. I think I want to research them. I really well, don't know anything about them. You know, there's. I didn't. I didn't really. Uh, I wasn't aware um, how spiritual some of John's lyrics were. You know, um, he talks about the own. He talks about higher consciousness. You know, Beatles had so many different songs. Some were fun. Some were romantic. But there were songs that 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 John wrote that were really, really, really spiritual, hmm. you know, 
And um, do you think that's an unspoken yeah. understanding amongst um, the majority of Beatles fans? Well, I have to say that I really think that part of the reason why there was such a love and the way people who were Beatles fans honored the Beatles, I really feel like many of those people knew that the Beatles were up to something that were greater, that was greater than what appeared on the surface. You know, um, yeah. they had such a gigantic influence on our world in every way. I mean, if you look at, yeah. look what was happening in life. I mean, in 1964, just look at the clothes that everybody was wearing. And then you go to 1970, whatever year they broke up, if it was 70 or 71, um, you look at how the world changed in that seven years. It, it's incredible. And yeah. how much the Beatles had a part of that. I mean, wherever the Beatles went, you know, one of the one of the problems for the Beatles is that wherever they went, it was insanity. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, they would show up at a hotel, and and there would be two hundred and fifty thousand people there. That's how many people were at Woodstock. And you huh. know, when they got to when they got to Australia the very first time, five hundred thousand people were waiting outside their hotel. Five hundred. That's twice as many people as Woodstock. You know. Yeah. One of the things, one of the things I I, I want to share because this is something that, you know, that George explained to me. Um, you got to look at it. You know, when we think of the Beatles, we think about how famous they got and how much influence that they had. You know, on right. the world and on everybody. You know, mm -hmm. but if you just go back a little bit in time, they were a really hardworking band that played in clubs where people danced to their music. Okay, so every in every town in the world, there's there's clubs where there's musicians playing who are not getting a ton of respect and are just like the music in the background so people could have a date and go dancing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you got to remember that this is where the Beatles came from. So, you know, everybody dreams of getting a raise where you get a 30% raise. Wow, that would be a great, great raise, you know. Well, they had been hardworking for many, many years, and all of a sudden they got a million percent raise. You know what I mean? All right. of a sudden, everything got so bizarre. Like, in a way, I see how bizarre my life has got over the last three years from all these experiences. But just imagine, you know, I, I have this saying, you know, every guy in the world wanted to be in a band with the Beatles. Every woman in the world wanted to be married to one of the Beatles. But no one had any idea about how difficult it was to actually be in that wave as one of the Beatles. You know what I'm saying? To see your life go where you can't even walk across the street without getting envy. attacked by people. I don't envy that. that no. Mm -mm. I don't, know, I don't George, think that way. That's, that, that had to be a very hard existence, I think. George told me the reason why he went to India was because he couldn't understand what was happening. I yeah. mean, can you imagine? You, The people who are listening right now, you have a Let's say you have this normal life where, you know, you're not, none of us are that famous that we can't walk across the street. Um, and just imagine that something happens next week where all of a sudden you are so unbelievably famous that you can't walk across the street. You, can't, you could never go to a restaurant yeah, and just sit down in a restaurant. Yeah, I mean, but just imagine how yeah. surreal that would be 
that's how surreal it was for them. They were four normal guys. You right. know, they were guys playing in a, in a band that people like to dance to their music, and now all of a sudden they're propelled up to this place where it was so surreal and yeah. they, they really... Had to- they had to make sense of it for their own sanity, and spirituality was the only way they could go, clearly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And by, you know, trying to find the meaning behind all of it, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, why were they chosen for that stuff? You know, I mean, they were... You're not... A couple of you, years earlier, you they were up just... for this stuff. Why was I... You know, why were either one of us chosen for certain events in our lives? I mean, we'll we'll find out why in the end, but for now, we just have to accept, you know? Mm-hmm. It is what it is. You know, well, we're we're running short on time, David. I just wanted to let the listeners know if they go to your website, davidyoungmusic.com, you have an amazing array of albums. You've you've created so many albums, and you've got Christmas albums, lullabies for children, and so many others. I want the listeners to know that that's there for them to review. You also made a movie. Now there's the book one. We anxiously await book two. So thank you. But I just want to thank you so much for coming on the air and sharing your amazing journey and your beautiful heart with us, David. And I, with regard to your music, your writing, and especially your spiritual path, I would just like to say, in the immortal words of Sir Paul McCartney, very well done. Very well done. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, I, I love making music, meditation music, any kind of music. I love it all. And And just for the record, you know, you can... If you'd like to order the book through Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com, you can get it there as well, besides going to my website, you know. You can also get it through my website. I added it yesterday. Beautiful. Yeah, I'm I'm an Amazon affiliate, so if they want to go through the direct link, that kind of supports the show. So I would appreciate that as well, people. Well, I want to play one of your songs, David. Okay, well, you guys have a great day. Thank you so much, David, and you take good care. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody, until next time, God bless and be at peace. Here is The Rosetta Stone from Deep Spirit by David Young. 